sermon text this morning is Galatians chapter 4. We are slowly but surely making our way through this book, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to those churches in Galatia. I'm going to begin reading, however, at verse 23 of chapter 3 because I think it establishes the greater context for this book. So let us turn back to chapter 3, verse 23, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 7. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we come to you this morning thanking you for your word. And we thank you for this portion of your word that you have seen fit to allow us to study this morning. Teach us what it means, O Lord, to be free from slavery and to be adopted as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't speak from experience, but nine months to a woman seems like an extremely long time to wait on a baby to come. Once she's found out that she's pregnant, nine months seems like an eternity. And parents will often wonder, after they've found out that they're expecting a child, they'll often wonder, when is this baby ever going to come? When will this baby arrive? Nine months can seem like a lifetime. Well, imagine then the anticipation, the expectation of the promised one, of the arrival of the promised one that was given to Israel. That promised one who had been promised to Abraham and to Sarah, specifically, I guess, and most locally there, and the son of uh, their, their initial son, Isaac. You see, Abraham and Sarah had to wait decades for this promised son to come. And they got impatient. They didn't want to wait any longer, so they saw fit to have a son by their own plan, according to their own plan. They wanted to do their own thing. And things did not work out well. All you have to do is read those early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 15 to, to 18, to see that things did not work out well when 
Abraham and Sarah decided to go according to their own plan. But even longer than that, the world waited. The world waited decades, uh, excuse me, thousands of years for the coming of the promised one. And if you think about that initial promise there in chapter 3 of Genesis, when God promises Adam and Eve that they will have a son who will strike the head, crush the head of the serpent. Thousands and thousands of years, humankind waited for this promised son to come. And Abraham himself waited close to 2,000 years for the coming of Jesus. And as the world awaited the birth of her Savior, the world also awaited the birth of the church. The church was in a fetal stage throughout the Old Testament. As we said last week, the church did not just pop up out of nowhere in those early chapters of Acts. The church was gestating. It was there in Israel. But it had not been born yet. In Acts, we see the birth of the church. But it was growing and developing under the Old Covenant. The church was truly born about 33 years after the birth of Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he went into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came down on the church at Pentecost with power, the church was truly born. The church had been waiting since the time of Abraham for this promised time to come. And it had finally come into the world. So here's what I want you to think about this morning. At just the right moment in history, precisely the right time, God sent his son to redeem his people in order that we might be born again and become God's own children. At just the right moment in history, God sent his son to redeem us in order that we might be born again and become God's own children. Now I've divided this passage up into three sections. Verses 1 to 3, which I've titled Temporary Provision. Verses 4 and 5, which I've titled Permanent Status. And then verses 6 and 7, our first gift as God's children. Well, let's look at this first section, temporary provision. In chapter 3, verse 23, which we looked at last week, Paul said that before faith came, before the object of our faith came, Jesus Christ, we were held captive under the law. He said in verse 22 that Scripture imprisoned us under sin. We were imprisoned until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 23 and 24 of Chapter 3, Paul focused on Scripture. You see, he uses the law, he discusses the law to show how it was the legal guardian, how it was the, the warden of the prison, how it kept God's people shackled under chains. But in verses 1 to 3 of this morning's passage, Paul shifts the focus a bit. He moves on from talking primarily about the captors to talking about the captives. Last week, we talked about the prison guard this week, and the pedagogue this week, we talk about those who were in prison. We talk about the Old Testament saints. We talk about the New Testament saints, the Galatians, ourselves. Before our faith had come, we were all held captive in prison uh, to the law. And so in verse 1 he says, I mean, he's clarifying what he said in those previous verses. I mean, or what I mean is, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner or the Lord of everything. 
Now, what does Paul mean? What is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the Greek society and the way that, that wealthy people operated. A child in this society could have an inheritance worth millions and millions of dollars. But until that appointed time, until he's legally old enough to inherit, until the time which his, the date which his father has set, that child cannot inherit a dime. And so, speaking in terms of material wealth, he is no different than a slave. And it was customary in Paul's time for fathers, wealthy fathers, to do this. They would, they would hand their son over to the care of a guardian or a steward, a manager, as Paul mentions in verse 2. And this child might have known his entire life that he stood to inherit his father's wealth, his father's estate. But he could not come into possession of that estate until that appointed time, the appointed age that his father had set for him. And during those times, until he reached full maturity, he had about as much freedom as a slave. His guardian, this person who, this manager who looked over him day and night, they told him when to sleep, they told him what to wear, they told him where to go, when to eat. There was very little freedom and choice that this child had. And likewise in the life of the church, and this is where Paul draws a parallel. In the life of the church, the law had the role of being the guardian and the manager. The law served to confine the people of God. They were in bondage to the law. But Paul shows that the captivity of God's people under the law had a very important function. It wasn't all bad, even though it was slavery, even though it was prison. You see, the function of the law was intended to bring them to full maturity. It was to mature them in the womb, to prepare the church for its time when it would be born at the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see, they were imprisoned, but they were also protected. They were shackled, but they were also trained up in the way they should go. But what Paul wants us to remember in this passage is that the function of the law in this way is temporary. It's not intended to last forever. He says in verse 2, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. The law, and especially those laws concerning circumcision and food, those dietary restrictions, the law was always only a temporary provision for God's people. Now the moral law, don't, don't go too far. The moral law still stands. The Ten Commandments still stands. They stand for God's people, for those who have professed faith in Christ, as a, as a rule for our obedience. They show us how we're to walk in loving obedience to our Savior, to our Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the law no longer carries the condemnation for those who believe in Christ. It does for those who do not believe in Christ. Now in verse 3, Paul says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Whether they were Jew or Gentile, before they knew Christ, they were enslaved to these elementary principles. Well, what does Paul mean by that? It's a strange phrase. In some of your Bibles, you may have a footnote that says elementary spirits. It's because they don't really know how to deal with this word. But at least, at the very least, it appears that they're talking about the basic building blocks of the world, the ABCs, if you will. These are the basic elements from which greater things are built. And among these ABCs is most certainly God's law. But Paul's main point in these three verses is that the law was a temporary thing. It was to establish founda the foundation, and then greater things were to be built upon it. It was a temporary provision for God's people 
that had a definite end date set by the Father. Well, let's look at verses 4 and 5, this section I've titled Permanent Status. In these verses, we find out when that end date was. Verse 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul's talking about Christmas here. He's talking about the advent of Christ and his birth to the Virgin Mary. The law's function as guardian and manager of God's people ended in the fullness of time. But it didn't end abruptly. It didn't end right at the coming of Jesus Christ, right at his birth. It came to an end over the course of his life. And you see this. Jesus is constantly battling against the old covenant. He's battling against the structure that the Israelites have built up on the law. They've gone beyond what God had ordained, what he had intended. But the law and this function especially ended at Jesus' death. Jesus was born under God's law so that he could deliver God's people out from under it through his death. He was born under the law, meaning he had an obligation to keep the law, just like everyone else. He wasn't exempt from it, though he could have been, as God. But in order to be our Redeemer, in order to be our Savior, he had to be born under the law. And Jesus was obligated to keep the law perfectly, which he did. Now, verse 4 says that God sent his son. The fact that he was sent, Paul goes to, uh, to show that the fact that he was sent shows that Jesus existed before his birth. It doesn't say that Jesus was generated. He was sent. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And it is by him and through him that all things were made. And it's a grievous error to think that he came into existence at the point of his conception. He's existed from all eternity. He is eternally generated by the Father. But it's also a grievous error to focus only on his birth, while ignoring his life and his death and his resurrection. And this is what we do in our country. We focus so much on Christmas. We focus so much on the gift-giving and all the things that, that go around it that we forget about the rest of Jesus' life and what he did. We think of Jesus only as a baby in a manger. But Paul makes sure that believers don't leave him there. And we see in verse 5 that Paul says, Jesus was born to redeem those who were under the law. Redemption comes to those who are under the law by Jesus' perfect keeping of the law. But also and especially through his becoming a perfect sacrifice atoning for the sins of God's people. You see, verse 4 highlights Jesus' uh, birth in Bethlehem, and verse 5 highlights his death on the cross. And so Paul doesn't want to allow these two central elements of Jesus' life, of his coming, to be separated. Paul makes clear in verse 5 that Jesus did all these things, that he was born, that he was obedient to the law, that he died, that he was resurrected. He did all of these things so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came in order that we might be received into God's family. Jesus was born of a woman so that he could become our elder brother, so that he could shepherd us into God's family. And when Jesus came, God's church moved from the temporary status of being under the law to the permanent status of being adopted as God's children. 
Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 24, that Jesus came in order that we might be justified by faith. And now in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, he says that Jesus came so that we might receive adoption as sons. And these two verses show how closely related these two doctrines are. The doctrine of justification and adoption are so close. They're so related. They have very, uh, many similarities, and yet they're still distinct. They both are based on Christ's righteousness. Justification is Christ's righteousness being credited to us. It's credited to our account. It's imputed to us. And as we are declared to be righteous in God's sight, we're also declared to be adopted as God's children. Justification and adoption both take place in a courtroom setting. A judge pronounces that you are justified, and a judge pronounces that you are adopted as children. Our adoption is based upon Christ's unique status as the eternal Son of God. As we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, as we put on Christ, as we talked about last week, we become the sons of God. And justification and adoption are the immediate results of being born again. Just as Jesus talked about Nic uh, to Nicodemus in the book of John, Born again is being regenerated, and justification and adoption come about right at the beginning of that. When you were born again, you were justified, but you were also born into the family of God. And at that point, at that point of being born again, you are God's son or daughter. Well, let's look at verses 6 and 7, our first gift as God's children. Thousands and thousands of older children in this country are awaiting adoption. And thousands and thousands of, of couples in this country are waiting to adopt babies. Now for many people, adoption of an older child is not an option. It's not a consideration. And it's understandable. They want a baby that they can hold. They want a baby that they can nurture. They want a baby that they can train up from the very, the very earliest days. And their own, according to their own morals and standards, according to, for many people, their Christian beliefs and faith. You see, older children, depending on their age, have spent years under the care of other parents. They've spent years in foster homes. They've been brought up according to a different set of ideals. And everything I've read about adopting older children, everything I've heard from people who have adopted older children, they all say that it's not for the timid of heart. You've got to work patiently with these children. You've got to love them and transition them from one household to the other. It takes time. There are arguments. They tell you they hate you. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging and painful process, and it will involve conflict after conflict. Well, if it's difficult for human parents to adopt older children, think of the difficulties that adopting sinful human beings would be, of adopting people who have never known Jesus, and at some point in their lives, they come into the household of faith. How difficult would that be? You see, we have come to the Lord Jesus. We've come to God the Father from a different way of life, from a different household. We've, been, we've grown up in a different way. And even if we grew up in the church and professed faith in Christ at an early age, we're still coming from that sinful background. We've still transitioned from death to life. But it is remarkable to see people who have never known Jesus until they were adults, and to see their lives be transformed from one of chasing uh, all kinds of sinful behaviors to a life of obedience and faithfulness 
And these people get all the headlines, and in some cases it's, it's, it's right, and it's because of the change that has taken place in their lives. They have gone before other people's eyes from being sinners to being saints. They have transitioned from being orphans to being a son or a daughter of God. And God in his wisdom, knowing that the transition from one household to the other would be very difficult, made a very generous provision. He gives the first gift of our inheritance uh, to his children at their adoption. Verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. At your birth as a Christian, your heavenly Father gives you this very precious gift, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables his people to cry out. These people who have never known God the Father, to cry out, Abba, Father. And you'll remember that Abba is that special name that Jesus uses himself when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14, verse 36, he, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yet what you will. This name, which was the privilege of Jesus alone, he has given to you to use for your heavenly Father. And it is, a, it is a term of respect, but it's also a term of great affection. In our day and time, it would be rendered daddy. It's a close name, a, a name that only God's children may use of their father. The eternal son of God used this name for his father, and he has allowed us through the Holy Spirit to use it in our prayers and to use it in our worship. Now, it may take a child who's been adopted at an older age years to call his parents mommy or daddy and say it with true affection. But by the Spirit, you and I are able to do that from our first day as God's children. Those who don't know Jesus and haven't received his spirit of adoption are not able to do this. But we can cry out to God. We can cry out to him in times of trouble. And we can know that he will hear us unlike those naturally uh, sinful human beings. We alone have access through prayer and through worship to our Heavenly Father. Now these are exclusive claims, and that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. There are a lot of people who want to say that God is the Father of everybody. And yet the Bible is clear that only believers in Christ have access to the Father through the Son. And this is why Christians pray in Jesus' name. It's a regular and constant reminder of how we have gained access to God's throne. And being able to come into the presence of the Most Holy God and worship and prayer is true freedom. You have been set free. You're no longer slaves. And this is why Paul says in verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When you placed your faith in Jesus, you became free to do something that you've never been able to do before. You can worship him in spirit and in truth. You can go before the Lord in prayer and ask your heavenly father to help you and to assist you. And he will hear your prayer. You can speak to him in worship. You can talk to him with great respect and affection. You can bask in the sunlight of your heavenly father's love knowing that he will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, came to redeem you and to usher you into the presence of his Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in many ways, our personal salvation history, that history of redemption that you and I all have, our individual unique histories of salvation, it mirrors the history of salvation for the church, doesn't it? Before Christ came, the church was in the fetal stage of development, confined by the law, bound up until the appointed time of the Father, until the fullness of time. And in the same way, before we've placed our faith in Christ and publicly professed our faith, we were confined under the law by our own sin. The church was truly born after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. The Holy Spirit came down, that spirit of adoption, and was poured out on those believers at Pentecost. And you and I were truly born only when we were born again. When we professed faith in Jesus Christ, when we knew him as Savior and Lord. And prior to our rebirth, the Lord was preparing us for our own personal fullness of time. And because we have been born again, we have received this spirit of adoption. We are the sons and daughters of God Most High. And he welcomes us into his presence because we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. But scripture is clear. Scripture is clear that God draws a line between people who are his children and people who are not. Everyone is not okay with God. If you have not professed faith in Jesus Christ, you are not okay with God. Everyone needs to do this at some point in their lives. If you're not walking in obedience to, to God's word, Scripture calls on you to repent and to believe. To believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that he has saved you from your sin. Forget your pride. If you are hanging on to something that's holding you back, forget your pride. Get right with God. All you have to do is repent and believe. God will not leave you as an orphan. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. He will lovingly adopt you as his child. And when you finally are able to do this, then you can call on God as your father and come into his presence and know that he loves you. Let us come into the presence of our father now in prayer. Our gracious God, we do indeed come before you and ask, oh Lord, that you would draw us to you. If there is any who does not know you, we pray, oh Lord, that he or she would profess faith in you and repent of their sins. Bring us to you. Draw us to you, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.